0: Welcome to the Sum of It All Street Data Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the book Street Data, a Next Generation Model for Equity, Pedagogy, and School Transformation by Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we are chatting about Chapter Three Flip the Dashboard street data that drives equity.
1: Yeah, and you know, Audrey, even just after a few years of California using this data dashboard, boy, the author's description of the handouts and the colors, I mean, I felt like I could just be sitting in that meeting. Um, And it's just, I think it's important for us to examine the impact of this tool on each group of stakeholders in our educational system. It just really hit me as I was reading the narrative of a parent asking, why are we doing so poorly? I mean, that is just such a heavy statement to, to absorb. Um, And you and I have talked about the potential consequences of what Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez refers to as gap gazing, right? Um, This confirmation bias that can occur as we gaze at more confirming data to quote our authors on our most vulnerable students, They also use this phrase of relentless deficit narrative. And Audrey, this this has been so true in the content area of mathematics. How many thousands of students have been judged by this data narrative in terms of their potential of actually doing mathematics?
0: Yeah, I I appreciate that, Mark. You know, and this example that the authors share at the beginning of examining this dashboard data, you know, there's an assistant superintendent who just says, like what's happened in public education is that we're told over and over again that there's something wrong, but it never helps us to understand what is wrong, why it's wrong and what to do with it. And so these data conversations feel like postmortems. like the mm. the data is lagging so far behind any possible chance to change the course for these particular students. and And we're no closer to an idea of how to change the outcome for the next group.
1: Yeah, great points, Audrey. I also noticed that, that good reminder about lagging data. And also they mentioned this idea of it projecting a single story about underperformance versus really addressing that complexity of learning. Um, I think an important point here is that it really insinuates that students of color have lower intellectual capacity rather than differential access to opportunity. And that's a quote again from our authors. Again I feel like there's such strong connection here to mathematics education. Um, we use data like this to track black and brown students into remediation where they are drilled in isolated facts in elementary school for example um, and w- we have this heavy focus on skills versus developing thinking and reasoning and support our students in becoming more proficient in thinking and reasoning and Audrey, I'm afraid that as educators we send the message to the to our students that, they are not capable of higher level thinking because we're we're not working with them in that area, um, and I believe that this happens in general education and our special education settings in mathematics. And I think the story we keep telling ourselves to go back to like these overarching things. Our author, the authors, give these three points, Audrey, that to justify, defend, and to blame with this satellite data, right? Well, I think that that's informing the story we keep telling ourselves is that I'm sorry, we can't have students engaging in grade level meaning making because they are lacking certain skills. And all of this really goes to that point that our students are not broken. And Mm -hmm. our work in universal design for learning is really around uh, this premise that, um, you know, these standardized test scores have long promoted that the myth of students of color need developing. um, And that, you know, we have students that are broken and schooling will fix them. And, and again, the whole premise around universal design for learning is that our students are not broken, but the system is broken. The curriculum is broken. The way that we're doing instruction is broken. Um, so I think using this text, Audrey, in terms of examining that and for furthering our understanding about how to address that is pretty exciting.
0: It is, you know, that, that, part on page 52 around the margins really stood out to me too is a strong connection with universal design for learning and you know they bring in three different voices around where this idea or the metaphor of margins come from which is just absolutely rich in reading and something I didn't know and I appreciated them centering the right voices for me on that Mm -hmm. Um, but this quote on page 52 says we we choose the margins flipping the dashboard upside down to center the experiences of those who matter most. A little bit later, the families and students and the educators who breathe life into learning. And I think that's really what's behind both universal design for learning, what they're talking about here with street data is that the the margins are the place we need to focus on, right? The the students and the voices that have been marginalized is the place where we can find what a quote from them is deep cultural wealth and community wisdom. And that, I really feel like um, that if we can figure out how to center that, we might be able to find some actionable steps and some solutions to our biggest problems. Um, but they point out very quickly that like, in order to do that, we have to be vulnerable enough. And the quote from them is that vulnerable enough to reject the racist lie and stare down the parts of our own practice that need to be fixed. And I think that's the hardest thing is that if we're not mm-hmm. putting blame on the students, if we're not saying the students are broken, then we have to say something else is broken, right? Mm-hmm. And what's left right. is a curriculum and our practices or yeah. structures and what we're doing as adults in the system. And so those are hard things to point at. Um, and to think about how we change them and transform them. Um, So I love this idea that we can use the margins to bring our children to the center of educational discourse. I loved that from that that section. Um, So I appreciate the way the authors are framing this conversation. I'm wondering though, for our time on this episode, if we might do the same things we've been doing, trying Mm -hmm. to have our our asynchronous book club with all of our listeners um, and using the author's suggestion of diving into some of these reflection questions they offer at the end of the chapter to kind of further what we're reading, making connections there with our practices in our work. So I'd love for us to start with the first question mark, and it's this, Um, identify it idea or passage that stood out to you? Share and reflect on it. Why did it resonate and what felt challenging or provocative?
1: That's that's a great question to start with, Audrey. I'll have to narrow it to one here. Uh, uh, One of the quotes that I'm going to bring out is on page 53, and here it is. It's time to repurpose data from a tool for accountability and oppression to a tool for learning and transformation. So I just really love how they really you could tell they really thought about what words to use in that phrase. And and I really embrace that. Um, But then there's a little part of me that starts to get curious about the how of how we ensure each school in absence of a system of accountability. So like I'm thinking, Audrey, as I'm thinking about, okay, let's take that satellite uh, standardized testing away and and how to ensure that our schools are still gonna support every student. So I feel like this idea of accountability, if we just take that one piece of it, Audrey, it has a two-edgedness to it, right? Um, This accountability system that we have shines the light on inequity in our system. But at the same time, that's causing damage to students and influencing deficit views among us as educators by focusing on that accountability. But if we take it away, how will we know in what spaces students are not being served? Now, I, I realize that that's why we're reading this book, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to find out some of that that how. Um, but that thought still comes back to me and haunts me a bit. I, I worry that we might go back to a time where the light doesn't shine uh, brightly on inequity and folks will kind of make the excuse of like, you know, we're still building the plane, we're flying it, we're figuring out this equity thing. And and you know how much I hate that plain yep. analogy. <laughs> so, um, you know, th- those are those are just some things I'm thinking about, Audrey.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I see that, Mark. I see that the there's pieces there and what you're talking about that goes back a little bit to chapter one for me, um, that this is a complex problem. And I think the authors even call it, to my mathy side, something I love, they call it a fractal problem. Mm-hmm. And I think... In saying that, it it means that it really requires us to think about a complex or fractal, in their words, solution. Um, and I think our current mindset is is probably that we're trying to solve a complicated problem by trading something out for something else. Um and and I can see that our authors are are both calling us to just stop with poor practices. Like I remember that distinctly from I think it was chapter one where they're like, what if we just stop doing that? Um but I don't think they're asking us to then substitute in the long list of things that we often head right back for. Like I think they're really asking us to think about a, a solution in a different way. And I think that's why they're calling them fractal solutions. And they're asking us to um, in chapter two, like dream about what is possible instead. Um, so I I hear both parts of what you're saying, Mark. And I think that I think the authors agree with that and say, like, this is really complex, but we do need to just stop. And yet when we start anew, it needs to be different.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's so true, Audrey. In mathematics education, we, we have to dismantle the system to a point. Um, just moving chairs around won't won't do it. And um, I think we've been definitely trying to improve the system by tiptoeing around the complex change that is needed and, and how it's messy, as you pointed out.
0: Yeah. So the passage that stuck with me was on page 60, and it started um, by offering this at the very top. It said, what is unique about street data is that it provides a comprehensive model of school transformation, stitching together four often siloed elements. Equity is the fundamental purpose, pedagogy is the fundamental pathway, adult culture is the vehicle, and street data as the GPS system that keeps us on the path to equity-centered transformation. I think those are four interesting points um, that make sense to me, but I can also see how they could be really controversial. For Mm -hmm. instance, like, I don't know that everyone says the fundamental purpose of school transformation of why we're trying to change things is equity. I think some say it's better test scores. Some say it's about ensuring students are prepared for the future and that equity is more of a byproduct than a focus.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point, Audrey. That really reminds me of the controversy we're having in California around the draft of the California Mathematics Framework. Um, You know, there was a real intentional effort amongst that group of people that were leading that work to lead with equity. And as you know, that resulted in pushback as a result of that. Um, And in some spaces, that pushback sounded like just teach the math this has nothing to do with equity that that type of uh, response um, so it's definitely important for us to deal with how we might message how equity is central to the work that we do with our students and I, I think we have a lot of work to do with that in mathematics so that we can be really articulate around that and um, be able to explain it in a way that that really communicates that message well
0: yeah. I also thought that the adult culture called up as a vehicle was super interesting. And I know we've discussed this before on other episodes about like um, when we are sitting in traffic, we like to blame the traffic, right? And we forget that we are the traffic. Um, and I think similarly, I think the same thing happens with culture. I think we like to call out toxic cultures or cultures that are not um, positive but it makes me wonder how much we are responsible for the culture like we are the culture versus how much we blame others and i just a huge asterisk or footnote there like i know it's not a clear cut conversation i know that sometimes there are cultures we walk into and we're part of so i don't i don't mean to say it's that simple but it does cause me to pause and so i felt like this was a very simple and yet very provocative statement in the chapter around these four components um, for school transformation.
1: No, a- absolutely, Audrey. Uh, how about we take a, uh, take a try at another question here and uh, see how it uh, guides our discussion. Um, here's another one. Identify an equity challenge in your community. What do available satellite and map data tell you or not tell you about this challenge? What street data do you need?
0: This is a great one. And I'm super interested to hear maybe what listeners are thinking about in their local context. Mm -hmm. Um, The the first one that comes to mind for me today is our students with disabilities in mathematics. Uh, We have tons of satellite data in dashboards, like what the authors described at the beginning of the chapter, Mm -hmm. that show that students with disabilities are not mastering grade level math content. And we have local data in our schools that show this gap is persistent, right? Like they have multiple measures of this. Um, and I think it translates into a bias that says students with disabilities um, are, are broken, right? And even maybe you are so broken that we need to have a separate class for you. Um, but what I think is missing is that like, um, to go back to maybe season two and Paulo Tan's work and his colleagues work is like, we are totally completely forgetting how much mathematics needs our students with disabilities. Like we are thinking that it is a privilege to study mathematics and only it is only allowed for elite instead of looking up and saying like, no, without their, without each unique perspective that comes to the table, mathematics becomes dead. It's not alive. It doesn't actually move and grow. And so I think this really pushes to me around this idea of the street data we need to be collecting around, like, what are your experiences in mathematics? Um, what do you know to be true like what do, how are you approaching this what do you think about this um yeah I'm thinking about specifically that context in our work
1: yeah that that really resonates with me audrey uh, another another thing that that makes me think about um, this whole idea of uh, where where we see this equity challenge is with our youngest learners in learning mathematics um one of the things that I've noticed over the years audrey is that, and this is a really scary statement that our students' mathematical futures are sometimes determined at kindergarten. Mm. Um, This, this informal tracking that starts uh, really with our youngest learners. And I really believe there's a phrase that's kind of maybe explicit or implicit around what happens in early grades with mathematics is um, we use past performance to predict future success. And this past performance can be very, Mm-hmm. A short timeline with a very young student, um, but we use these single data points. We we use uh, different types of satellite data in these uh, online platforms and other ways that we've, we're assessing students with single data points and deciding what they need. Um, and uh, you know, it it really is something that we have to take a a really careful look at in early elementary grades and see are we just looking for deficits? Are we looking for holes in students thinking or are we seeing what strengths they're they're arriving with um, and seeing how we can build on those strengths. So I think it's really important for us to think about that with the early grades.
0: Yeah, that's so true, Mark. I really I can see that. I can see the need for um, pushing the conversation there and saying like how do we not track students? How do we not take single data points? and do that. And so I think that pushes us to say like, so then what kind of data should we be collecting and what should we be thinking about instead, right? And so I appreciate that the authors uh, share with us a variety of options or a list of ideas, I suppose, I would say, um, both towards the end of the chapter and throughout the chapter, there's several of them listed in different green boxes um, highlighted throughout around these ideas of street data and ways to collect street data. Are there any of those that stuck out to you as um, interesting or ones that you thought you might wanna try?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, On page 54, there was this idea proposed of this this exit interview that might be done with students. Um, And I think that is just such a a wonderful opportunity to to really get an empathy interview type of a situation where students might share their, their lived experience um, and I'm thinking specifically in mathematics. Um, and what are the barriers that they encountered as they were in those situations? And, and what if we asked some really honest questions about um, where they felt like they didn't see themselves in the classroom or um, other ways that they, they were not respected? I just think that would be really important to gather data around that. Um, As you know, I have a couple of my own kids that are in high school at home, and sometimes over the kitchen table, they share such really great insights around things that are happening in their classroom. Like, wouldn't it be great for their teachers to hear those insights?
0: Yeah, you know, I love that. And I I appreciate the idea of an exit interview because I know that there are things that both students and maybe staff as they're exiting or leaving a school might not be willing to say until the moment they're leaving. So I understand the importance of exit interviews, but I think the reason they tied this with empathy interviews is that for so many students, waiting until they're leaving means that we don't have an opportunity to change and improve improve the situation, improve the experience, um, and honor what they bring to the table, right? So I think that's the important like slash there in their example is like, maybe that's one place you collect data, but how important it is to collect it along the way so that we are able to kind of um, in real time make change towards doing things better for our particular students and not waiting till after the fact.
1: Oh yeah, Audrey, you are so right on that. That would be way more powerful to do that along the way. Uh, great point. Um, Was well, we look at that really great list of suggestions uh, in provided by the authors, You know, number eight really resonated with me, Audrey, and it's this idea of an equity-focused classroom scan is what they call it. And what this is is a demographic scan that you can do in classrooms um, across your campus and and see who are the students that are in particular classes, especially we start looking at these different labels that we put on on classrooms in mathematics like accelerated or advanced. Um, And I'm thinking about how powerful this could be for um, teachers and leaders to do in schools to, to start to see is that prophecy that I mentioned earlier, that your math future could be determined in kindergarten. If we look at our high school classrooms, what evidence do we have of that deficit um, um, paradigm playing out um, where, you know, students are in the advanced track of mathematics and which students are not. And, and how are the expectations and the instructional strategies the same or different between those two tracks of students? In other words, not just the content different, but like, how are the classes led and facilitated? Are they the same or different? And I think by taking that scan, um, it's an important first step to really ensure that all of our students have access to doing mathematics on a daily basis, no matter what class that they're in, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great, a great option for collecting street data. You know, the list had so many examples, um, or at least several I could count that reminded me of work that I did early in my career, but moved away from. And so as I finished reading through the list, I was reflecting on why I stopped doing some of those, like, why did I stop doing ethnographies? Why did I stop doing home visits? And I realized that that the time when that shifted for me was when the satellite data became the focus of my teacher evaluations. Mm -hmm. So when I would be sitting down and my administrator would be asking about my satellite data, um, that that I felt like that was a signal towards moving away from street data, I guess. And now that I have the words to know that, I guess is what I'm reflecting on. And Uh, instead of choosing to lean in to doing more street data collection and understanding how to change and grow, I think at the time I thought, that the response to satellite data um, was supposed to be obvious, right? Like, mm. um, and I think maybe that's the big trick: is that, is that when we're approached with satellite data, we think that there's satellite solutions. Maybe I don't even know the right word for that, but like, and and yet, like the the Ed Services Assistant Superintendent said at the opening of this chapter, like the satellite data isn't actionable because it doesn't help us identify the root cause or what to do to fix it, and so. Right. So I'm, I'm really wrestling with that as I, as I finish through that list and, and appreciate the authors pointing those pieces out um, and recognizing that like our short little book club time is running out. I'm wondering what, like, what final thoughts are, are you, are you taking with you? What are you still wrestling with as, as you kind of leave this chapter?
1: Well, one of the thoughts that I'm walking out with is, you know, the another idea that the authors brought up is this idea of false generosity and, uh, something that educators might uh, have around their students. And it's been a phenomenon that I've experienced in my work in education over the years. And, and actually something that I've likely been guilty of at one time or another. Um, when I became more conscious of it, I actually used the term pobrecito, which is mentioned in the book. And um, they credit Dr. Gloria Lansing Billings uh, as, as using that term. And I think that term rings so true with mathematics. Um, just the notion of some of these poor little, poor little ones, these students, that math is hard or difficult for them because they are "quote unquote" low math students. That whole deficit view that they are only capable of so much, and only, and and their future may only be on this regular track of ma- math anyway. Um, I just think that it's really good to consider in our self-reflection, are we exhibiting that type of mindset? That mm-hmm. pobrecito mindset where we're looking down on students as not being capable um, and really challenging each other and our colleagues to make sure that that we're really not having that deficit view, but an asset view.
0: I appreciate that, Mark. You know, the thing I'm gonna walk away with and do some more learning around is um, the authors describe a Kiva panel, which, Um, apparently is referenced in Shane Safir's earlier book, The Listening Leader, which I have not read, so it's now on my list to grab and dive into. (laughs) Um, But what I noticed in this description of this Kiva panel was that um, the, the satellite data wasn't ignored. Like they didn't just say it's worthless data. Like they didn't just cross it off the list, but it wasn't the focus or the center of the discussion, right? The center of the discussion took voices from students, parents, and teachers, that they said this data, this street data, is trustworthy and compelling in a way that earlier the satellite data was looked at as not trustworthy and not compelling. Um, And that justifying, defending, and blaming that the authors talk about that comes with street data um, doesn't exist with street data. So, um, or it happens with satellite data. I think I've said that backwards. So um, I'm I'm gonna keep looking into that. I'm super curious how how you work on a Kiva panel. I'm super interested in how you have those conversations and you center the right voices in those conversations. Um, and so I'm I'm leaving this chapter looking for those opportunities to really listen to the voices at the margins, recognizing that sometimes it's just, it's gonna to be tough to hear, um, but I need to do that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Audrey, thanks. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about Chapter 4, Pound the Pavement, Digging into the Levels of Data. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on transforming education.